What is the history of the nerve sparing technique as it relates to prostate cancer? These are the nerve bundles that come around the prostate that are essential for erections in men. After a prostatectomy, prostate removal due to prostate cancer, you want to spare those nerves. There's a history there. And I speak with today Dr. Herb Lapore, who is the chairman of urology at NYU Langone Health. And yes, he's my boss. And we talk about that history because he's part of that history with Dr. Patrick Walsh. Many of the papers are written with him on the nerve sparing technique. We talk a little bit about where are we today with medical treatments and prostate cancer. We talk about the difference between an open prostatectomy and a robotic prostatectomy. And we talk about focal therapies a little bit and where we're trending, where we're going uh, with uh, medical treatments for prostate cancer. Lastly, we talk about what is it like to be chair of a department for 30 years. There are very few chairs around the country that have held the helm for so long. And Dr. Herb Lepore will be celebrating his 30th year this year. And uh, we talk about that just from a human level, uh, which I think will makes this conversation interesting. So enjoy this conversation with Dr. Herb Lepore on all things prostate cancer treatments and 30 years as chair. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Geo, where it's my goal, intention, and purpose to help you with your prostate health and live better with age. I have such a great honor to have the boss. He is my boss and the boss of many at NYU Urology, Dr. Herb Laporte. Herb, thank you so much for being on. I know what your days look like because I see it every day. And for you to agree to be on my podcast means so much to me for many reasons, but certainly for the certainly because you know you carved out some time to be on. So I I really appreciate it. It's my absolute pleasure. Listen, we've been colleagues and friends for a long time. I know your program, your podcast has a broad reach. And yeah. so I'm thrilled to 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 spend the time with you today. Thank you so much. It, it and again, it's an honor. I I you know I'll say this publicly in my podcast is always an honor to learn from you. I mean, whether or not you know it, to me, you're pretty you're you're a mentor in many ways. Not as a surgeon because that's not what I do, but as a great healthcare practitioner to your patients, as a great leader in the field of urology, great leader in the department of urology at NYU, and as a great father. I want to start there. Why? Because I've been around quite a few urologists throughout my life. I've been around chairs of different departments. I've been at conferences and spoken to chairs of different departments. It's all, it almost seems to me like once you become chair of a department, it's of a medical institution, it seems like you have to give something up because the workload is more significant. And oftentimes what you give up, I find in what I, my observation is being there as a father. You, however, have managed to be a top surgeon in the field, be a top chief in urology for a while. And we're going to talk about that because there's a celebration coming. And still throughout now, I've been at NYU for 13 years or so, which I can't believe. I've always noticed and admired your relationship with your daughters and your conversations with your daughters. Not that I'm eavesdropping, but you know, you talk to them and your, your door is open and you always find time for them and to speak to them and to be in the moment and help them through things in life. Where does that come from? Why are you, the, why, why do you function that way? And um, why perhaps other people struggle to do that with their children, I find? So I guess what's a priority is family. I was one of six. And so I think I, the apple doesn't far fall far from the tree. And I know that my parents, the children, were always a very high priority. I think I'm very blessed. I can be very, very efficient of my time. I'm able to to move from one task to another pretty seamlessly. Mm. I always get something done before I move on to the task. But also, like I will tell you today, I looked at my day. 
I had a bunch of patients. I had to write several letters. I knew I had a bunch of meetings and I looked at my schedule. I said, you know what? I bet you I can meet my youngest daughter for lunch. And she's working as an intern. She's a third year student at NYU. She's working as a, a intern with Senator Schumer. And I know her time is very regimented. And I know from 1230 to 1.30, she takes lunch when she can. And, and is on 48th and 3rd, and we're on 41st and 2nd. And I just texted her at noon. I said, you want to grab a bite? And uh, so we took a quick hour for lunch. And I was back at 1.30 with my meeting with Audrey. So I think time management is important, mm. but also the children are very important. And, and that's why when anyone, if there is a, a family issue, I always emphasize that you have to make time. You can't compromise the responsibility ever you have for, for patients responsibilities. But at the same time, you can't use that as a reason to neglect your your other responsibilities. And look, mm. I could be replaced as a surgeon and I could be replaced as the chairman as one day I will. But the one thing you can never be replaced is as their father. And I I just I do I do it not because I do it for me as well. I get yeah, a tremendous yeah. pleasure out of just being there and not just for the emergencies, but just being there to help celebrate their day-to-day -day life. Oh, it's, it's admirable. And I could tell you since day one, I've noticed that. I admired that. I was like, God, he, Dr. LaCour gets it. And it's amazing. And you could see the results. You have two amazing young ladies as as daughters that uh, to you listen <laughs> thank you i think most of the time we you know we both are passionate about prostate cancer right yeah as are you and the important service that you do for for patients in their lifestyle which i think has important implications for their overall health and also for their prostate health but i think the probably equal time that we spend talking about prostate and our patients, we end up talking about our children. It seems to sort of naturally our discussion to go into something that we both treasure. Yeah, for sure. And and it's thank you for touching on that. I think that well, that's interesting. I just had lunch with Lauren today, so and, I don't it's, it's it. and it was spontaneous. Is look, you yeah. have a busy day, time management, but Very spontaneously, good. pretty much. Hey, are you available? Yeah. And I think that you know, I think that in your you created a system a long time ago where so well, this is my priority and you're mindful about your relationship with your with your kids and those that are successful with that i do think is the most important job i mean yes helping people improve their health is very important but if you have an uh, unhealthy unhappy doctor and sometimes that's a result of perhaps you know not a great relationship in their home life and with their kids i think that's at least correlated then then it's hard to do the job that we want to do and to do the good job we want to do as, as as physicians so you know there's times i've missed the important events in their life because you have a responsibility to the patient but i think it's important for time management and i think they do a lot of things well but i think i manage time because i can get my patient work, my administrative work, my research work, but but not at the expense of, of right. uh, either mentoring, I would say, my urologic children, which are the residents. Mm -hmm. To some degree, the faculty, as many of them could be my children, and my biologic children. Speaking of mentoring urologic children, you were a urologic child yourself with one of the greats is in Patrick Walsh, Dr. Patrick Walsh. We're going to talk about that in a second, but I think you're also your upbringing is actually very fascinating to me. There, this is another difference that I find with as I compare you to others, other chairs. You would think you're Dr. Lepore. You are known in the field. You know, you're a legend in urology at, at this point. Actually, there's going to be a write up on you in the Canadian Journal of Urology on that. But you were not brought up with a silver spoon in your mouth, actually. You were brought up in a very humble environment with just great family members and great parents. And I you know, recently learned you were born yeah. here in Brooklyn. Yeah. I, I'm like, no, he's from 
no, Dr. Poor is from California. I said, yeah, he is, but he was born here. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I just had an interesting conversation with my daughter last night because she came in, she had ripped jeans and she had Converse tennis shoes. I said, you know, when I grew up, if I had ripped jeans, they had a pinch on it. And Converse t- tennis shoes were the cheap ones that they're only those that who couldn't afford. So I said, That's you right. know what? I said, it's interesting how things have come around. I said, you probably had to spend a lot extra for those ripped jeans. <laughs> right. and, and those Converse tennis <laughs> shoes are probably a lot more expensive, even accounting for in- inflation. And <laughs> sure, look, I was one of six. It's interesting. I never felt that I was being shortchanged in any way. There was a strong emphasis on education and accomplishment. You know, I always realized, I'm sure like you, Gio, there was no contingency plan. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you weren't successful, I always say, I'd be flipping hamburgers at Wendy's, <laughs> right? And so I was disciplined. Mm-hmm. I ended up going to UCLA. I was 16. I like to go back to college and have a full college experience again at UCLA. I mean, I did have, I did have some that yeah. was the, the star and I went many games or not that many, but some to, to, to Polly Pavilion. But most of the time you found me in the, in the, in the library. And look, I was younger than anybody. And as we were, you know, just fortuitous because I was interviewed at UCLA for Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. I had no Mm. idea what urology was. It just so happened that the person who interviewed me was the emeritus chairman of urology at uh, UCLA. Mm. He actually trained Pat Walsh as a resident, but his roots were from Hopkins. So he Mm. interviewed me for Hopkins Medical School at UCLA because I couldn't afford to visit Baltimore. And then I came back and I said, you know, Dr. Goodman, look, I've gotten accepted to UCLA, UC San Francisco, top 10 medical schools, but there's this place I did get into to Hopkins. So what do you think? Should I venture to the East Coast to go to Baltimore? He says, young man, you have an acceptance letter to the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. <laughs> I advise you to get a stamp and to address a letter of acceptance. And when you get there, Patrick C. Walsh just became the chairman of urology and you go and introduce yourself as soon as you arrive in Baltimore, which is exactly what I did in coming to Pat Walsh with the name of Goodwin, right? Just like <laughs> for me, anyone coming to me with the name of Walsh on their lips, and right. that all of a sudden elevated me to a higher level of interest and so began. Now you had to be, you couldn't make too many trips at that time, according to a article that's going to come out of the Canadian Journal, because it's, it was, it cost money to get you from San Diego to Baltimore. And it's not like you had a lot of disposable income to just keep flying back and forth. So, right. Is that part of the story? I think that makes it even more interesting. Totally. Cause I couldn't afford to take an interview in Baltimore. And I have to say, you know, Baltimore in 1975 was a pretty rugged city. <laughs> and right. so you're talking about a kid that was well born in Brooklyn. My family moved to San Diego when I was a year old. Mm-hmm. I grew up in San Diego, went to school in Westwood, right? LA. And then all of a sudden, sight unseen in downtown East Baltimore. Let me tell you, that was a bit of a shock to my nervousness. Mm. In fact, I have to confess, I called up UCLA, UC San Diego, UC San Francisco, begging for my spot back in California. (laughs) And they said, listen, you know what? In two years, you can reapply as a transfer. And I said, listen, I survived this. I'm putting it on my wall. And there is the proof that I, I did survive. And not only survived, I guess I would thrive. I stayed on for another seven years in residency in in Baltimore. But that was a bit of a shock to my nervous system when (laughs) I arrived in downtown Baltimore, having basically spent my whole life in Southern California. Well, it toughened you up because then eventually you have to come back to New York, another tough city, and then really start start the program from scratch. We'll get there, which is an amazing story. In 19... So I have two papers here (laughs) that you may be aware of, that you may know of. 
One written in 1983. These are scientific papers, Journal of Urology, where the title is Radical Prostatectomy. Again, 1983. Yep. With the preservation of sexual function and anatomical and pathological considerations. First author, Patrick Walsh. Second author, Herbert Lepore. Third author, give him a name drop, is Joseph Engelston. Eggleston. Right. What? What was... What was prostate surgery like prior to 1983? It was it so it, was there a zero percent chance that men were able to get erections prior to 1983, and were they? What was the continence rate like, and what was the life expectancy after a prostatectomy? So, with radical prostatectomy, first of all, it was a very bloody operation. Mm. And so when you're doing a surgical procedure where your visualization is really impaired, then preserving confidence was a challenge. And actually, believe it or not, up until the early 1980s, the work that I did with Pat Wells, virtually all men were rendered impotent, the inability to have an erection. And nobody really quite understood because of the high rates of incontinence and the significant blood loss, it really didn't get a lot of attention. So it's a very interesting evolution of the nerve sparing. So in like 1979, 1980, you know, Dr. Walsh developed a technique to preserve the dorsal vein. And this is what caused excessive bleeding. In fact, when I came to New York, they were putting art lines in and they were expecting six units of blood to be transfused. And I said, look, you just need a regular IV. You don't need art lines. We're not going to lose any blood because he actually developed a way to control the dorsal vein. So that sort of made this a bloodless field. Then he ended up going to Scandinavia and he met with Donker, who was one of the anatomists. And he was very interested in doing dissections in the fetal male and showed the nerves that were actually traveling to the urethra. And Dr. Walsh looked at these drawings and says he sort of had a eureka moment. He says, you know what? I think that's the pathway that the nerves that control erection, the way they get to the pink. So he came home and by now I was just starting my residency. And he knew he could always depend on me. And so he said, Herb, here's what I need you to do. I want you to go down to the pathology department and find me a specimen that will show the relationship of the nerves to the, to the prostate. And so I actually went down that afternoon and as fate would have it, there was an unfortunate young man who had a lethal accident. So we actually were able to take a section of the prostate because it was small, you could also include the adjacent structures. And I said, look, Dr. Walsh, the nerves that uh, may be controlling erection, that looks to be outside of the prostate. Well, that meant that there was a possibility to do a nerve sparing. So he Up said- until that point, you thought it, the thought process was probably that these nerves were within the prostate? Well, actually, nobody even thought about the nerve and where mm -hmm. they might be. They just accepted the fact that Men were going to be rendered impotent, but that was very down on the list of priorities when incontinence was an issue, blood loss was, was an issue. So he said, look, no good deed goes unpunished. He says, okay, now your next job, now that you found me this specimen, let's get an entire specimen of the bladder, the penis, the prostate. We went through the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. They made 7,000 sections. We stained each 10. And then we developed a three-dimensional reconstruction, which showed meticulously the precise pathway. And he said, there they are. I'm going to develop an operation for those patients where the cancer isn't encroaching or going through the outer surface, which is the nerve sparing, which was the paper you referenced. And being such a tremendous mentor, because of sort of the role that I had in sorting out the pathway of these nerves, he included me as a co-author on that landmark paper, which then enabled me going out when I left Hopkins at St. Louis at WashU and Wisconsin, and especially when I came back to New York in 1993, there was really no one who knew how to do this nerve sparing. And I said, okay, you know what? In my early years, I did a lot of work in BPH. I said, you know what? 
I made my contributions. I'm going to focus my entire energies on prostate cancer. And so we really spent 30 years uh, riding on how to further improve outcomes. But it was really the mentorship that I had uh, yeah. that really set the sails for my career. So what did you guys find? So this nerve bundle, and again, just in Lehman's term, as po- if possible, this nerve bundle is around the prostate where is it like a peeling off process that occurs in a surgical situation? What exact, exactly is happening that you're able to spare those important nerves for penile erections? Yes. Yeah, so on one hand, we can't see mm-hmm. them, right? So what we know is where they are. Mm-hmm. So what we, first of all, in order to be able to do this sort of meticulous dissection, it has to be in a blood-free field, which he had already sorted out in the in the early 1980s. And so really the way that you save the nerves is you do the dissection being very close to the to the prostate. Now, it's not like when you do thyroid surgery and you got that laryngeal nerve and you either save it or you don't, but you can see it. We do a nerve sparing. And when we walk out of the operating room, we really don't know if we've spared these structures. So you know, whether or not the man will regain his erectile function depends on a lot of factors. One, the actual technique is important, their age, because a lot of times the nerves may get a little bit damaged, but they have this resiliency, which is greater in younger men. If they have comorbidities like diabetes, they already have some baseline, maybe unrecognized AD. So, so really it's not a slam dunk, but doing a nerve sparing has greatly, greatly improved erectile function post prostatectomy, but there still are a lot of men who will have ED, Mm. erectile dysfunction. Despite the nerve being spared. Because we really don't know if we have, because you don't see a discrete structure. So, hmm. but we know, and let's say on certain times where one side, the cancer may be much more prominent, it's actually extending through the outer surface of the prostate where we have to actually remove that tissue. And presumably we're also removing that nerve. Again, we don't see it. So when I deliberately remove one nerve, and attempt to preserve the opposite side where there may be no cancer or minimal cancer, the intentional removal of that tissue will decrease potency rates by about 15%. Now, if you're 50-year-old with very good erections and you do a nerve sparing bilaterally, the chance of preserving erectile function is 80-90%. You take that same person who has good erections, they're 70 years age, in a years old, it may be 50%. You take and that- this is regardless if you spare both nerves versus yeah. one yeah. set of, so for our audience, so, so the nerves come in both sides of the prostate. And uh, exactly. your intention is to hopefully, depending on many factors, spare both. Mm-hmm. If you spare only one, the the patient, the person can, if all thing, all else being equal, they can get an erection with just one set of nerves. So, so for the most part, what we published, is that if we deliberately remove that tissue that we suspect includes a nurse, we will decrease our potency rates by about 50%, 15. So let's take the, the 50-year-old excellent erections. I say both nerves, it's 80%. If I remove one, then it's going to be 65%. We take the 70-year-old with good erections, and we intend to save both nerves, and it may be 50%. We remove one, it's 35%. But again, it's also very important when you counsel a patient that you also include their age mm. and their baseline erectile function to begin with. But there's no doubt that the nerve sparing went from like zero to maybe on average about 60% because there's different ages, there's different sure. baseline function. And again, and this really fueled my interest in focal therapy. Because look, if all men by preserving the nerves or intending to do so were potent, there'd really be no reason to do something less maybe 
invasive to preserve erectile function. So we made great strides, but even when we intend to save the nerves, one, some men may be rendered where they can't get erections at all. And some, they may struggle a bit, but have at least some function that allows them to have intercourse. So Herb, every time I hear about the your numbers, I was like, well, I, I, how can that be? So, so numbers with regards to the amount of prostates you've removed throughout your life. Approximately, where are we now at this point? So, you know, I, oh, lifetime, I've done about 5,000, you know, radical prostatectomies. And look, there were years in my prime, I would do 300. So I believe I was the highest volume prostate cancer surgeon in the country and probably in the world. Now, as you know, and I've debated this on virtually every continent except Antarctica because the <laughs> penguins aren't interested in the in, in topic. In their prostates. <laughs> and so looking at the robot. So, you know, in the year, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was a lot of hype about the robot. And, and every single legitimate study that ever has been published comparing the two has failed to show any difference in length of stay, in complications, in recovery of and recuperation, continence, potency, and in surgical margins. But it has been, you know, brought to the public as this approach that is minimally invasive with a rapid recovery. And in fact, there isn't a legitimate study. In fact, I always point out the one study where the where the robot actually beats the open is in dissatisfaction because mm. there's a four times greater dissatisfaction when Duke reported those who had the robot versus those who had the open. And it wasn't that the robot was worse. It was just presented as this minimally invasive approach. We're going to see your nerves. You're going to be potent. And you had all of the same issues of the open procedure. But you know what? That train has just left the station. That train has left. And, and there's a lot of men that will yeah. say, they'll come in and I'll give them, you know, talk to them about the, the radical in the open. And then they'll say, they'll see their cousin or they'll say, well, you know, I had an operation and I went home the next day. And, you know, I was back in three weeks. Listen, I've had guys run marathons after an open procedure three weeks. But you know what? Look, you know, you can't fight the marketing trends. That's I right. still believe when I Despite the what, evidence. Yeah. And I always say to the residents, listen, when I have a student, I'll say, look, I just did an open. In the next room, they're doing a robot. You go in tomorrow morning and my patient looks better because I'm extra peritoneal. I'm out of their intestinal cavity. I do this faster. And then I say, yes, when I leave the room, the residents can tell you what they really feel. But I bet you, you go with, as a student who's visiting, you go tomorrow morning and you'll see that my open patient, the open surgical approach is actually is a faster recovery because we're outside of their intestinal cavity. They're a shorter anesthesia. But you know what? You know, there, it's been so hyped. You can't beat the marketing, but I've won every single debate. <laughs> But, so this is for our audience. So Dr. Lepore is one of the leading prostate surgeons in the country, if not the world. And he's been a staunch advocate for open prostatectomy versus robotic prostatectomy or in comparison to robotic prostatectomies. And so that's this, what this conversation was about. Herb, is there, again, I'm speaking as a non-surgeon. Real quick. It's so, so I'm not really an advocate per se. What I tell a patient is that if you're looking that don't do the robot because you want an easier recovery, because you want a better cancer operation, because you have better continence or potency, mm. just have a robot because some reason you want a robot. So mm. what I would say is there's nothing right about the robot. There's nothing wrong about the robot. In other words, it really transformed the way that we do this procedure without any benefit whatsoever mm. the patient. And I jokingly tell them I'm the only robot that hasn't broken down. But. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
Well, you know, with the advent of artificial intelligence, we'll see how that changes with time, right? Well, you know what? I don't think there's really anyone left doing opens, actually. And, you know, most residents will yeah. go through their training and will never see yeah. open. And you know what? They really don't have to see an open because they'll do it robotically. But the problem is yeah. this did not help the patient in any way mm-hmm. in that it didn't improve continence or put in fact there was a big paper that just came out of memorial and they compared open and robot outcome is there more uh less blood loss with robot than uh yeah so you will have a little less blood loss but if that doesn't contribute to a faster recovery better confidence better potency in other Mm. words there is a little less blood loss but that doesn't translate into any meaningful outcome. So my transfusion rate, I think is two to 3%, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe with a robot, it's one person. Is there yeah. a learn, a different learning curve or a faster learning curve with a robot than open? I, I mean, cause I agree with you completely, but I think it, I mean, how many herb lapores are out there that are so great at doing open process. They're less now, of course, we know that. But even yeah. 10 years ago, there's just, there weren't that many, in my opinion, that were so good at this procedure versus robot, which in my eyes, observation only, I don't know if it's been studied, the learning curve might be faster with a robot than open. Is, is that, does that? You know what? It's very hard to know. Look, I believe that whether this is done open or robot, it should be done by experienced surgeons. So what you often heard, well, you know, this really doesn't make any, in other words, it's really a technology that doesn't help the high volume surgeon, but maybe for the person who does a few of these. But you know what? If you're doing a few of these with a robot, you really shouldn't be doing them. So it just makes sense for prostate cancer surgery to be done by experts. And you know what? I don't think there's any evidence that it is, you know, easier or a faster learning curve versus open. Yeah, I don't know. There's never been any any legitimate. But look, I think what happens is that whatever that is, this should be how we say to patients, look, the most important thing, I, this is self-serving, is experience. Is that experienced surgeon doing that? Look, I'm the only one. I've invested a million dollars to meticulously track my patients. If you ask 99% of robotic and open surgeons, they have no idea their outcomes because they've never captured it. So Herb, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because actually you're known for that as well. You, this is a very important point for the last 20, 25 years, 20 plus years, at least, you've tracked your patients. You've had other researchers tracking your patients for years after years to track your outcomes. And you're able to objectively report your outcomes at the AUA and different conferences. You're right, actually. No one else, I haven't seen anyone else who does that. So what are your current outcomes? That's the, the late the latest outcomes that you most recent outcomes that you have from your for your track record and prostatectomies. So the good statistic, and I hope to complete my career, I've never had a hospital mortality. So five thousand mm-hmm. patients, they've all left the hospital on their own two feet. What? In terms of any technical complication intraoperative, it's one in two hundred. 95% of my patients go home the same day. Okay. We the actually, same day, you said? I'm oh, the sorry, next the, day. The next day, the first post-op day. We actually published that half of my patients in two weeks are back to work. As I said, after two weeks, there's no restrictions. You want to go run a marathon? Go run a marathon. Very mm. few decide to do that, but I put no limitation. Now, when we talk about continence and potency, It's very important to define those terms. So, you know, our patients, we have 2,500 patients that filled out validated surveys. They go to a third party and that's the basis for our publication. So we asked a very simple question and I didn't ask it. They, the patients had to circle. It said, are you continent? Yes or no. It's not maybe, it's not, I'm almost there. It was a binary decision. And it wasn't me saying, oh, come on, that one little, you're really continent, aren't you? 
they actually had to look at the survey and circle I'm continental. So you never, ever wore a pad. You called yourself con. If you actually use one small pad in 24 hours, you called yourself con. Mm. Yeah. Why would you ever say you're continent if you have to use a pad? Well, I didn't say they're continent. They said they're continent. Why? Because if that pad gets wet, they throw it out. Now, if they use two pads a day, again, they're still controlling 95% of their urine at least is going into the toilet. They call themselves incontinent. So if we take that at three months, 80% of men circle their continent, 90% at six months, 93% of the year, 97% at two years. So the good news, most get it quickly. Some it's a more protracted course, but 97% of the men become continent, but you have to differentiate between continent and perfect. So I remember I was once in a debate and I, he's a good friend, so I won't disclose his name. And he got up and said, you know, 97% of my patients don't use a pad. And I got up and said, well, you know, look, I guess you got me there. I said, 97% of my patients are continent, but 17% of them use a small pad. He said, no, no, well, that's about the same number of mine that use a pad. I go, well, but you just said you don't use a pad. They don't that 97 are paid. Well, they're, they're really, that pad is dry. So I go, wait, no, you can't do that, right? <laughs> right, so, right. So when I talk to a patient, I differentiate between perfect and continent. And the same thing with erections, you know, Gio, was somewhat deceptive, or I, now I say disingenuous, is we say, okay, we're going to preserve your erections. Now, here's what we actually call preserving the erection. So at two years, we, we say, you filled out that survey and it says half the time I initiate intercourse, I'm able to have satisfactory intercourse with or without using a Viagra or a Cialis in, in two. That's what we call preserving sexual function. Now, so, and often we restrict our, our data to patients who have perfect directions, we're going to save their nerves. And then we tell, like you say, the 70-year-old guy that comes in and is barely having erections, taking a, oh, well, you know what? Our potency rate is 65, 70%. Well, that's in the perfect patient. Mm -hmm. that's, done. that's the patient who had perfect erections prior to the surgery. Exactly. That didn't use Viagra. Now we're going to let them use Viagra. And we're going to say that half of the patients... Uh, we're talking about half of the time. Now, it was very interesting, the paper that I just said, there wasn't a shred of difference between open and robot that came from Memorial. They said, okay, we're going to take those people with perfect directions. We saved their nerves. Two years later, we're going to let them use Viagra when they did it. And we're going to say, how many got back to baseline erection? It was 30% and not a difference in the two groups. So, you know, what we have to do it's the honest. Yeah. And, and ask better questions. And the other thing, like you say, the Duke study, what I've also published is your satisfaction depends on two things. How did you do and how did you expect to do? Yeah. And if you tell someone who really has a 30% chance of having satisfactory erections, but you, you give them the data that says 70%, then they're going to be pretty... Um, to set. And the other thing we don't talk about, Geo, and we published is you can have penile shortening, penile curvature. You can have some incontinence with orgasm. So look, I think what happens is we need to disclose this. But when you're curing a cancer that is life-threatening, men will accept those potential sexual issues. But I think we need to be honest in our expectations and define what we mean by continent and define what we mean by preserving their erection and trying to not just give, you know, a global rate, but to tailor it to the specific patient and their function and their age. Perfect. And so we in our department, I find that we have been, maybe we are too many people, because again, I'm not a surgeon, but our colleagues, my co our colleagues, and you, Herb, have been in the forefront of innovative treatments that are non-prostate removal based for prostate cancer. You touch a little, we, we've come a long way. I remember even 15, 13 years ago, we were just doing HIFU. You were doing HIFU. It's like, wow, you know, this new innovative treatment. Now it's not so new anymore. 
cryo. There's a great paper I already interviewed our guy, Jim Weissock, on the cryo paper showing excellent results within two years. And we're highlighting that. So things have evolved pretty significantly. Tell me a little bit about that. And then we want to go into your 30 years as chief. Yeah. So I'll be quick in that. Look, I recognize that with the radical prostatectomy, we do have men that have sexual dysfunction. We do have men that have incontinence. So our department really were pioneers in using MRI. And for the most part, MRI is very good at identifying where the aggressive cancers are. So we began to ask, okay, so if the, if there's, if we can localize the aggressive cancer to one area of the prostate, the robot I knew would not help me get better sexual outcomes. But I said, you know, I bet if I could do the lumpectomy of the prostate, that's the strategy to improve upon quality of life outcomes. So I did a really neat study. I lumpectomy said, similar to what women would do to bre- to their yeah. lump in breast cancer. Yeah. And when breast cancer started, the lumpectomy, everyone ridiculed it. But guess what? It's the standard. So what we did was I said, OK, let me take patients who would be candidates for focal therapy. In other words, using some energy source to target that area where we know the aggressive cancer resides. And I said, OK, let me take those guys and, and the criteria would be the opposite side does not have an MRI lesion and no significant cancer. And I said, okay, I looked at, this was a classic paper that I published. And I said, okay, what's the likelihood, assuming that I'm able to destroy the known aggressive cancer, what's the likelihood I would leave any elements of aggressive cancer? Now, it was only 20% and it was tiny. Now you say, well, wait a sec. No, no, time out. 20%? How can you follow 20%? Well, guess what? I wrote a paper about a decade ago, and it's exactly what we see with active surveillance. So why do we tell someone who has low-risk cancer? Hey, you probably should do active surveillance. The protect study just said, if you do active surveillance or surgery or radiation, 15 years later, you do no, just no well. Different. But yeah. 50%, 60% go on to need whole gland treatment. So if you have low risk cancer and I take out your prostate, you know, the likelihood that we're leaving, that we're following more aggressive cancer, it's 50%. So why can't I follow 20% if I'm able to eradicate the disease? So then we said, okay, Jim and I have a prospective study. Jim is a wonderful call, you know, and a, yes. a, a superb technician and, and really a, a real innovator. So we said, you know what? In six months, we're going to biopsy every single patient. And again, he went over this paper, 3%, 97% of the time, we knocked up the cancer. And then we looked at two years and still 97% of the time, we knocked up the cancer, but 10% cancer creeped up in the other areas. But guess what? In that same cohort of patients, 20% of men will develop a recurrence after radical prostatectomy. So our recurrence rates are not that far off, but here's the difference. We never had a rectal injury. We never had a patient ever use a pad. And like I said, now we take that really excellent group of patients, right? We say, okay, the guys with perfect erections. Now at two years, what we've reported is 94% are functional at two years and 80% are back to their baseline. So again, I didn't jump on the robot because I said, there's, there's the emperor wearing no clothes. Right. But we've actually been major pioneers in focal therapy because if you want to improve on sexual function, eliminate incontinence. Now, we have to follow the patients. But guess what? At three years, and as Jim had done, had spoken on your prior podcast, 97% of men at three years still have the, their prostate. And you know, we're just getting ready to look at our five years. So I will tell you, that early on in my career, I advocated alpha blockers. And today for benign prostate, that's the standard of care 40 years later. I was part of the, the nerve sparing story. 30 years later, we're doing nerve sparing. I will tell you, mark my words, that focal therapy is be, is going to become an established treatment option. Look, I just had a patient. And he had one area and he had a lot of low risk cancer. You know, we sat there, he's 55 and we said, you know what? Probably following this is too little. Taking it out is probably too much. Look, I can knock that one area out 
you'll be home the same day, right? You'll be back doing everything, activities in three mm. days. And you know what? You'll never have incontinence. And you know what? There may be slight, and guess what he said, decided to do? He decided he signed up today to have an ablation. Because again, following something that's already visible, you know, is I think kicking the can down the road. The radical is probably a little bit much for him. And so that's where I think focal. And fit. a focal ablation in this case is cryo, cryo ablation. You know, cryo is our main working horse here at NYU. Mm. We did high food. We didn't have great results. Jim just did a study with electroporation, right? And in fact, we're just getting ready. You know, there's the aqua ablation. Yes. Uh, that Chris Krieg is one of the leaders. In and the he's, country. by the way, he's I also, he's, he, there is a published, or there will be a published interview with Chris on aqua ablation that we have. But we're going to be one of three centers using aqua ablation for focal care. I, so um, there's I, a lot I, I heard, we spoke about that. Yeah. Talk about innovation. Yeah. My goodness. So this yeah. is, for example, aqua ablation. And for the folks listening, go back to the Dr. Chris Kelly episode that where we talk extensively on aqua ablation. Right. This is an area where with the location of the tumor is such where around, I believe, is the anterior pro portion of the gland. You know, a lot of times when we do a focal therapy with cryo, we'll actually put in a warming catheter, sort of preserve the urethra so you don't have sloughing. Well, the aqua ablation is just to basically excise all of that tissue with using, you know, their high flow water and they can robotically sort of define the tissue that will be destroyed. So if you have a tumor that's around the urethra and we're a little bit skittish about sort of encroaching upon the urethra, this may be a great... You can get a twofer if they have a big prostate that potentially will cause problems in the future, plus prostate cancer in that area, you get yep. a two for one. Yep, totally. And I think what happens is you you really do need to match the energy source with the disease. Yeah. I think today, every single case that I could do with HIFU, I could do with cryo, but there's a lot of cases with cryo that you can't do with HIFU. And what I don't like about HIFU, you're using like hundreds of little pulses of energy. And if one of those just somehow gets near field absorbed, you're not going to get confluence of energy and the price. You are not going to get 97% disease control hmm. within the first year. I've seen, you know, rates of recurrence reported after high flu of 40%, not 3%. So my enthusiasm for high Why is that hurt? Greatly, because I think what happens is when I do the cryo and I put two probes, I know that everything within that one centimeter diameter of that probe is going to be destroyed. And so I can really overlap this. In fact, I just had a doctor, he flew in from Florida. I did him on Monday. He had his catheter out today, he flies back home, you know, tomorrow. And right where that tumor is, we put a probe in and we got to minus 70 degrees center. It's just dead. Now what happens is that with the cryo, with the hypo, you're putting in like hundreds of pulses of, of energy, right? And if one of those pulses doesn't really hit because it gets absorbed in route to the prostate tissue, mm. then you're going to leave cancer. Problem. I see. So you're trying to target the tumor. It's just the energy source is just not energy getting there. for. Yeah. And I know if I have probes and I mm. know that, you know, wherever I put that probe and I can replace it wherever I want it strategically and I put in multiple cryoprobes, I know that in that area of the cancer, it's getting lethal energy, and we don't have that assurance with the, you know, with the high flu. And maybe the high flu might be a little bit more precise if the cancer is all the way down towards the urethra. But honestly, I think those patients should have a prostatectomy, and they still may have a positive margin. So maybe in that setting where the cryo may not be reliable, I'm not sure that high flu is the answer. Maybe that's the patient that even though they want to have uh, a more minimally invasive procedure is just not a good candidate because of the mm -hmm. position of the disease. Very good. Fascinating. Thanks for that. Herb, let's segue into <laughs> your, your, you know, so NYU as of today is rank, ranked top 10 NYU urology. NYU as an institution is top, it's top ranked countrywide and certainly number one in New York. So some bragging rights there. Urology department is ranked top 10 in the country. 
My understanding when you came 30 years ago was that forget about top ranked anywhere. It wasn't even, it was, there was not much going on at NYU Urology. So we've come a long way thanks to your leadership, right? And your vision. Tell us about, so when you first arrived, when we were about to celebrate 30 years in urology, first of all, who else has been chair of any urology department for that long? First of all, were you 20 years old? Did you, were you, were you like 25 years old when you started? Who does that? So I was 37. At that time, I was the youngest chairman in the country. I don't think anyone older and wiser would ever accepted the challenge of uh, bringing this department from sub-basement. You know, when I got here, our residents were the lowest scoring on the in-service. There wasn't a single paper that was published in a peer-reviewed journal. There wasn't mm. a single bit of the research that was ongoing. There was not a fellowship-trained urologist on the faculty, and everybody was in private practice, their own corporation, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? That's not how you build a academic surgical department that emphasizes not personal compensation, but excellence in clinical innovation, clinical care, research, destroy me. Because I said, no, that's not the model. We're going to be a practice plan. We're going to be owned by NYU. And we're all going to have a common mission and nobody wanted any part of that. Well, today that's the model of our institution, but I was the outlier 30 years ago, but step-by-step step, I recruited people like Samir. And then I, you know, with people like Vic, who then went on to, to UCLA, but step-by-step. Step, and I had the one thing that I did to you when I'm very proud of. I think it's 90, 95% of my faculty today, this was their first job. Hmm. And the majority of these people, like Samir, Tanasia, Bill Wong, Nareet Rosenblum, Ben Brucker, Lee Zhao, you know, I, again, I could just go through the whole list. Hmm. They are the leaders in this country in their areas of specialization. But what they did is they came here, they came here right out of fellowship. They bought into the culture and, and they really excelled. And that's how we built the, the program. I didn't go out and try to recruit people that are already established. We had a culture. We all bought into it. And you know, 30 years later, right? We're ranked number five in the country in NIH funding. That's right. We're the top residency training program in the Northeast. And as you said, not the U.S. News is the legitimate discriminator of excellence, but we are in the, in the top 10. And it really is because, you know, what I believe is you find out what is, so I always say to any faculty, look, we all work hard. I work hard, even though I took my kid out to lunch, right? I may be up till midnight doing all that I have to do, but we found the time. So we all work hard, all you know, committed to excellence, but you know what? I have a, a high standard that everyone's a good citizen and we all play in the sandbox together. Yeah. Uh, we all can excel in the areas of our passion, but I think it's a, not just for New York, but I think it is a unique department that is cohesive, uh, that is collegial, uh, that is collaborative. And I think that's why we've been able to accomplish not what I've done individually, although I feel you have to lead by example, but it's the collective, you know, accomplishments. And as we look to 30 years, you know, I, I know one of our senior faculty was lamenting and they said, you know what, I just feel, you know, my legacy because, you know, I may not be a chairman and I've had opportunities to do that, but I sort of you know, didn't follow that. And I say, let me tell you, Samir, look, the second I leave and we've seen other chairs leave, the institution moves on. I said, look, your legacy, first of all, your children, look, don't forget them. A hundred percent. Your legacy is your urologic progeny, which are the hundred residents that I've trained over the 30 years. Your legacy is the patients that you've cared for. And really the lives that you touched and, and nothing 
in your legacy is really that you had the title of being a chair. Although I think it allowed you to sort of provide the environment for others to excel, but you can do that without being a chair. And so when you think, and you think more and more about legacy as, you know, I'm not saying I'm throwing in the towel, but 30 yeah. years, uh, I do believe I'm the long, I'm by far the longest serving chair at NYU. I think there are maybe one or two other chairs who made it to 30 years, like Pat Walsh, because he came yeah. to Hopkins at 37. He stepped down at 67. So I'm tied. I think I've got a couple more years. And what I always say, Gio, when is it time for me to throw in the towel? Every year we celebrate our residents as they graduate and move on in their careers. And when I sit back and I said, look, when they started five years ago, is the program better? Did we exceed their expectations? And whenever I get the sense that that's not the trajectory, then I think it's definitely time to say, I've done my job. <laughs> well, listen, I, I, it's been a true honor and pleasure to, to witness the success of our institution. I commend you. I congratulations on an amazing 30 years from where this department was to where it is now. It is, it is one of the top institutions in the country and all the reasons that you said, but you, you always want to know what would I send my dearest family member to any one of our guys and our ladies? And the answer is resounding. Yes. In fact, I have, I've sent family members. I've sent close friends because they are excellent, excellent at what they do and how they do it. So congratulations. And, you know, in 2009, you gave a shot to this naturopathic functional medicine doctor, which most people don't even know how to pronounce naturopathic medicine. And that person is me. And then practicing integrative urology, which I'm super passionate about. So I personally thank you about that. I know this for our listeners, this may sound like a kiss up to the boss, but not, not at all. I personally have always express my gratitude to you, number one, as the leader that you are overall, number two, for giving me the shot where I'm part of a great institution and I share, we share patients and conversations on approaches and on how to best help our, our patients. So I thank you for that and congratulations. And I'm looking forward to celebrating you, hopefully at an event in November. Herb, final words from you. Well, you know what? I think that was very touching, Gio. I think the way I've sort of function is I always look at an opportunity like with you. There's probably no other department that has a naturopathic yeah. physician, certainly not one of your excellence. And you know, so many patients have benefited. But when you came to me, I said, okay, let's make it happen. Whatever it is, I always sit back. I do two things. In a crisis, I look for an opportunity because there have been crises along the way. And when somebody comes with something out of the box, my first instinct is, yeah, let's figure out how to do it as opposed to not that really can't be done. And I think your career, which has been brilliant, is really testimony to just let's make it happen. And I think you embody a lot what's great about a department. I said, one, work hard. Here you are with a podcast, right? <laughs> Two, be committed to excellence as you are. And there's no better citizen. So I think if, if anyone wants to sit back and figure out how, what was the secret, you're looking at one of them next to me as we do this podcast. And I think it's celebrate uh, your faculty. Always be there. I think I always drives the administration nuts because when anyone comes with anything against my faculty, they're innocent until proven uh, guilty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. They're not that's right. guilty. Because they're motivated to do yeah. what's right. And you know what you say is to me, it's just been an honor and a privilege to have the capacity to provide opportunities for you and I think so many others. And, uh, and that's really why this is a, a great department is because of really great people. Well, I appreciate it, Herb, and thanks so much. And we'll celebrate soon. Thanks so much. Have a good one, everyone. See you next time. Dr. Geo. Signing off. Thanks so much. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. 
you know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. And it has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. With In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.